This is episode 95 with my former college competitor, a 219 marathoner who started off with a 256 PR, a man who knows what it takes to improve over 26.2 miles, Mr. Peter Bromka. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and we're starting this episode with a confession. <laughs> I know that on our last episode with Brad Stolberg, I teased that our next show would feature Kate Grace, but we're going to have to wait a week for Kate because my conversation with Peter is a bit more timely. You see, he just finished the Boston Marathon in 223.08 in 34th place, and we're going to talk more about Boston what makes this race both so incredibly special and also so very challenging. But perhaps more importantly, we're talking about how in the world Peter ran a 2.19.40 marathon last December at the California International Marathon. This is an interesting question because Peter ran his first marathon in 2.56. That's slower than my debut marathon, and I'm nowhere near 2.19. And usually people who run 2.56 don't ever come close to qualifying for the Olympic trials. But Peter is within 41 seconds because he basically did not stop improving over the last six years. He followed that 256 with a 247, and then a 241, and a 236, 234, 229, 223, and then he ran 219. How is this progression possible? It's certainly not normal, and we're going to dive into the training and mindset shifts that helped make it happen. I also want to extend some gratitude to Missouri Ultra Runner, as he's known on iTunes, for a recent podcast review. He wrote that the Strength Running Podcast, quote, consistently keeps me focused and excited to learn more about the sport, how to improve and sustain an enjoyment for it as long as I can. Thank you so much for this thoughtful review and for noticing. I've long said that knowledge is a competitive advantage. Stay hungry to learn more about running and you'll make smarter training decisions, you'll sustain your excitement for the sport, make fewer training mistakes, which almost always lead to injuries. So thank you, I very much appreciate the review. Okay, let's move on to our conversation with Peter. He's a former cross-country and track athlete for Tufts University, and I had the pleasure of competing against him while I ran for Connecticut College from about 2002 through 2004. So you can see how a very good but not a standout Division Three athlete, getting close to an Olympic trials qualifier is so exciting. We have a lot to learn today. Even if you are not a marathoner, this episode is really about improving what that takes and how it looks over years. Please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Peter Bromka. Yeah, it was odd. I was like, oh, I guess you can't just like skip from one thing to the next to the next to the next. So, yeah. Well, that's probably a good lesson right there. And uh, I'm pretty excited to talk with you uh, for the podcast because I honestly think you have some of the, you have like one of the most exciting stories in the marathon right now that I can think of. Uh, you know, when I see, when I see world-class runners doing world-class things, it's, it's just kind of expected, right? But you have a story where you're not well, you're not yet a world-class runner, Peter, but you know, you are, you went from 256 and then you ran 247, 241, 236, 234, 229, 223, 219. Peter, oh. this kind of progress really 
almost shouldn't be happening. <laughs> and it's so exciting and it's so amazing. And so today what I want to do is talk about that progress, talk about what you've learned over you know the last uh, five years or so or six years as you've been going down this journey. And uh, you know maybe also talk more about your experience at Boston too, because that was your last marathon. It was uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was it one of the marathons that you actually didn't improve in? You've improved almost every marathon since you started this journey, haven't you? The first time I haven't improved in a race, in a marathon, um, since I got going five years ago. I, I did run one that uh, at CIM when I was injured. I just ran it with a friend. But uh, yeah, it was the first time I've actually headed out from the line and been like, I don't think I'm going to run faster than I ever have before today, which was a, it was a very weird feeling, and I think it sort of played to my advantage, um, but it was definitely odd for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about this progression. And uh, I also just want to be clear that, you know, we're going to talk about specific numbers, finishing times, your paces, but I think this really applies to everyone, doesn't it? Just because you're you're breaking the speed limit, Peter, doesn't mean that this doesn't mean that the average runner isn't going to get a lot from this. This is really a discussion for all the marathoners out there. 100%. And I'm trying to fashion this into an article because I write a lot online about running. And um, the more I start to focus on the OTQ time threshold, it's really given me appreciation for people going after the BQ at all different ages and different thresholds. Um, and just how much like those progressions are very similar. Um, I had sort of lacked that because I just naturally had been under the BQ territory. And so then everything was a little bit wishy-washy. Um, I had like built up very meaningful goals for myself, and we can talk about that. But then as I got closer to the OTQ, um, it really felt like um, a journey that I know other people are on at all different paces and all different um, times. Um, you know, it starts with like people suggesting it. And if I said like, a friend suggested I should go after it. I could be talking about a BQ for a relatively new runner or what happened to myself like two years ago. Um, and then I doubted that it was even possible because like I'd never really thought about myself at that level. Um, that could be true for any type of runner. Um, and then as I got closer to it and really started to break it down into components of what it was going to take um, to go after, I had all sorts of waves of like um, some excitement, but definitely self-doubt, um, both like enjoying the process, but then being hit with waves of like frustration and just, um, you know, kind of almost depression around like, wait, if I love this thing, but if I don't hit this one goal that someone else set, is it all for naught? Um, and I, I definitely sense that in some of my friends who maybe have run a few marathons and are thinking about a BQ. Um, or maybe they're just trying to like break, uh, say a four hour marathon and they're like, if I don't hit this other thing that doesn't really have to do with my body, just has to do with like general masses and statistics, does it mean I'm not worthwhile? Um, and I really started to feel that way for at times last fall, um, as I was gearing up for the OTQ attempt. And so, yeah, it's been really interesting because I would have said, you know, the general strokes of a uh, training, good training plan are true for everyone. Um, but it started to really be like mind and body, um, feeling similar to what I hear others go through, uh, as I came up against that threshold. 
Does it feel like when you were more in the beginning of this journey, you know, when you were running 247, 236, when you were closer to that side of the spectrum, does it feel like you were just running more for yourself and for general improvement as opposed to now where you have like a very formal goal, it's published everywhere, you know that there are hundreds of other marathoners out in the country trying to chase after this Olympic trials qualifying standard. Is it, how is that different mentally for you to grapple with? Yeah, I mean, I've described it as like I I used to approach the marathon as like, like okay, um, you know, try to be bored for a while and then then pick it up and then there'll still be plenty of miles to really lean in and give it your all. And that's how I ran 247 when I first wanted to qualify for Boston 14. Um, and then, you know, just finding these new paces and being like, ooh, this is kind of fun, like. 615s kind of work. That's that's interesting. And I remember distinctly, I was out with some training partners and I was running 615s and I was like, oh, this is awesome. This is like really not that hard for me right now. Um, I could run, you know, 615 pace. And that was a, I think it was a necessary phase I went through of being like, as I was learning how to cover the 26 miles, um, to be out there and be sheepishly like, this isn't that hard. Like I feel within myself because I've made it all the way to now as the goals are external, um, you know, set by someone else. It's, it's exactly the opposite. It's like, Oh my gosh, this pace is nuts. Um, but maybe if I train enough and then taper enough, I can get to a point where I could run it at a run that pace at a rate where I can also settle my heart rate and settle my breathing. And if I can do that, like, it's going to be a huge mental struggle, but maybe it's physically possible. And so, yeah, it's like just a, a world apart. Um, but I think all the steps along the way helped me uh, feel more comfort in that. And yet even then there's been multiple steps where I'm like, okay, this marathon will just be, I'm going to see a whole new um, level of splits I've never seen before. You know, like I ran one in Chicago, a couple of years ago, I ran 2:36, and so I was like, I just want to see six-minute pace, or like right under. Um, and you know, honestly, the thing I try to impress upon people is like really appreciate where you're at, and if you can appreciate where you're at, like I've written about this, that when I say to people like, "What's your marathon goal pace?" I often feel like they're like project, they're talking to me, but they're like talking to themselves and like talking about like what would be meaningful and like what they aspire to. It's like, well, I, I want to be a sub two thirty guy. And I'm like, okay, but like nothing you're talking to me about is based in the experiences you've had or like the runs you've done where you feel like within yourself. Um, you're talking to me about some external time um, whereas I was able to make this progression, I think by being like, huh, like, I think I can run sixes. Like I, it feels like something I can do. I've trained for it. I've done a bunch of them. And so let me try to string them all together. Um, and that's how I got to like a two thirty six. Um, and it's also been fun to run, um, like on Boston in New York, um, hilly courses where you're really forced to think about like how you're actually feeling as opposed to just like staring at your watch the whole time. Um, because, and so that's where like I had a pretty good run in Boston two weeks ago and it was, I mean, it was my sixth time running Boston and it just, um, 
again, like for the first time I was like, okay, I am going to not try to PR. I had run 219 at CIM and that's just so clearly a faster course that I was like, I'm going to um, run some splits and I'm going to, and I'm writing a story about it right now. I'm hoping to put out soon where it's like, we consistently, we just kept downgrading my, I was lucky enough to run with my good friend, Patrick Reeves, and we just kept downgrading like our goals. We just kept being like, okay, ideally it would be sub 518 pace, like an OTQ on a perfect, perfect day. And then two days before we were like, oh, actually it's going to be over 520 pace. And then you're like out there and we started to feel woozy and it was humid and we're like, it's going to be over 525 pace. Like just, you know brutally honest this is what it's going to be and because i'd done it before then you start to go okay you you take some mental um confidence in that like i've done this before and even though it would have been insane to me a couple of years ago i've done a lot of practice at this pace um so it's like it, it'll be okay um but yeah i mean that like 518s like 518 pace is 219 it's the men's b standard for the otq and it still is it's like now it's this like rival that I um, know a little bit better. And so it's like, okay, I got into the boxing ring once and like I definitely lost, did not win on decision, but like still came out with a 219.40. And so I'm like, honestly, without chasing 219, I never wrote, would have broken 220. And the fact that I broke 220 like still boggles my mind. Um, but again, it's like these things where if you just latch onto a whole journey in pursuit of something, and then it really does help like a thousand percent that I have friends around who, um, who just normalize it. We're like, yeah, we're going to do this. And this is, and then we're going to do these training runs to lead up to it. Um, there's, you know, there's been a lot of more, a lot of writing recently about, you know, pursuit of passion and also like balancing that with, um, like what's it look like to really commit yourself and um when it's to a negative end then it's considered an addiction and it's bad and when it's considered a positive thing that we you know revere it um is thought of highly and so <laughs> it is kind of weird to have it's like yeah i'm trying to break 220 but i also have like six friends who all who think that's like a real thing you can do um and so we just reinforce each other with like yeah we should just continue to try to chase this um and that sets you up for like not really letting um, the negative stuff enter your mind as much as it might. Yeah. And I know when we talked before, we were talking a lot about how when we were in college, you know, we were competitors, you were at Tufts and I was at Connecticut College and how the team environment really helped us to perform really well and to run times that, you know, we probably never would have run if we didn't have other people around us who normalized pretty extreme physical feats. You know, I was hanging out with guys running low four minute miles and that, that is crazy. That isn't a, cr a crazy thing to watch. It's, it's an amazing, uh, type of physical form is to be around, but when you surround yourself with it, you start to get used to it. And those kinds of leaps in an improvement and performance start to not be so scary to you yourself. Um, you know, you said something interesting earlier. You said, I didn't know if I could do this thing. And now the fact that you're a 219.40 marathoner, you have done something pretty amazing. Um, but, you know, a lot of people might look at you and they, they think you're special. I mean, you are kind of special. You just ran a 219 marathon, you know, five months ago. 
Do you think you're special in any way? What is what is the 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 secret sauce that has allowed you to go from, you know, barely qualifying for Boston to almost qualifying for the Olympic trials? I mean, it's pretty wild to think about because there's just so much information in today's day and age. Like I'm on Twitter on line reading about all the things you can do to improve. And I think what I would bring it back to is just like ruthless, like self assessment of is this working or not? And so adopting a lifestyle of um, routines that you genuinely enjoy, even if they're hard, um, but that where you're seeing objective improvement. Um, so again, like it is wild to me because I've said to people, it would make sense to me if this wasn't happening, you know, like I'm 30, I'm almost 38. I have a son, like I'm, you know, all over the place, like waking up when he wakes me up. Cause you know, like he wants me to rub his back and then, you know, chugging coffee in the morning and heading out the door. Um, it like, it wouldn't have to be adding up to minutes falling off my marathon. Um, and I would be like, yeah, that, that probably makes sense because I don't live like a monk. Um, I like really try to be mindful of my eating and try to get good sleep. Um, but it's not as though I have like moved to Colorado Springs and have committed to the Olympic training center. I heard you, uh, I heard you eat cookies during training. How, how do you balance all that, Peter? I know that. I mean, that's the thing of like when you're, really ramping up the mileage. And we talked about this last time. I, I was so, so the thing I try to drive home for people is what's important. I've had this a bit of a second chapter in my running career is like I ran in high school, ran in college. We, we raced against each other and I loved it so much, but I was really burnt out and like quasi injured quite a few seasons in college. Um, and so that grounded me in like, this is horrible. Being an injured runner is just the worst. Um, and it honestly is what kind of sent me away from the sport competitively for years. Cause I was like, I just don't know what in there beyond like running a few days a week for fun is something I care about. There's just so much heartache when you're injured. And so I set out on this five year, I didn't know it was going to be a five year plan. I just wanted to qualify for Boston 14. Um, with like, I want to get back to participating, but I really don't, don't want to be injured. Um, and where I am at my life in the early thirties at that time, um, it was like health above almost all else. Um, and that like honesty about like what a, you know, what a negative mindset I'm in when I'm injured, I'm no fun to be around. Like my days aren't as fun. Um, I actually injured myself leading, try, I qualified for Boston 14 and then doing so injured myself. And so I got to see like right off the bat, um, we're at the beach that summer and I'm just like in a pissy mood. Um, and I'm like, well, this can't be a zone that I can hang in for very long. You know, if this is what running is going to be about again, I'm, I'm not about it. So it's not to say I'm like infallible. I've definitely learned a ton about, uh, some of the things I've talked about are, you know, strength training, um, understanding the planes of my body and muscles for like the ways that I get injured. Um, so for me, that's like my hips get off, my cadence get off, gets off. If I start feeling pain in my shins at all, um, I know that it's not really a symptom of my shin. It means that my stride is off. Um, and that to me is like a red alert. Um, it's not that the more running 
is going to hurt the bone. It's more running while out of sync, you know, while my body's off. Um, so I'm, I just realized that in college I was probably, well, a taxing all systems, you know, like work out twice a week, race every weekend, still have a social life on Saturday, run long on Sunday. Cause that was like gaining in popularity. Um, like we should run long while also doing everything. So I was just pretty fried. And, uh, the thing I've said to people is like, you know, it's easy to say tough to do, but coming to understand where that threshold is for you and then settling into enjoying the process of just incrementally, just like ever so slightly increasing it over time um, because you don't need to be in a rush because there's no point in being in a rush because if you're in a rush, you're going to get injured. And so it's like, that's not where the promised land is. I would, I was trying to think about how to articulate this recently of like, the fitness you want isn't even gainable in a month, so don't try to gain it in a month. Um, when I, but I only know that in hindsight. I like look at my body now, and I'm like, Jesus, like, where did all these li- micro muscles come from? You know, like I'm like thinner than I. My wife is like, this is not the man I married, and I'm like, sorry, <laughs> I'm a little bit thinner. Um, I'm about interestingly, I'm almost exactly the same weight. Um, I think I've lost a lot of fat and gained muscle. Um, but you just realize like both gaining the ability to run higher mileage, um, and not get injured is, uh, just takes a long time. Um, so my philosophy that I always come back to is like to be a marathoner, you have to run as much mileage as you can. Um, but the truth of that is, is like we could physically as humans, you know, run a bunch in the born to run, um, kind of like heritage of our humanity. But the reality is like you and I are sitting in chairs right now talking to each other over Skype and I was typing all morning. Um, so you just have to like get really brutally honest with what you can do, um, from a mileage perspective now, and then just settle into trying to improve that really, really slowly over a long time. Because again, the other option is getting injured and that's horrible. Um, and it's not like it won't happen to all of us in some manner at some point, but, um, it's really just not worth it because not only does it suck, but just like maximizing that one week isn't going to get you the fitness that like a pretty consistent year is going to get you. Um, and so I say all these things and I almost say them, so that I'll remember them because my biggest fear, so I'm going to go for try to break 219 this winter in December. And I'm like, come on, Peter, just like get to the line healthy, you know, like don't be stupid because what you, what I want more than an OTQ is like a healthy shot at an OTQ in December. Um, And then I think the thing that I would encourage other people to do because I try to, do it myself is you take the goal and then you extrapolate to the um, behaviors, right. And the lifestyle, but then also you just like get super stoked on what it means for the experience. So my buddies and I are trying to not focus on 219, but focus on running 515 pace, which would be a 217 um, because we've done some of that and it's like pretty ridiculous and it's, it's really hard, but it's kind of rewarding in, in the sick way of like, holy shit, we're running so fast. Um, 
and we had two of our friends run 217. Uh, so two of our teammates have qualified with 217.40 and 217.50, I believe. Um, and so we're like, we want to do that. Like, that's super rad. Um, and it's going to take a lot of work. But it's way more invigorating to me to think about it like that than it is to be like, I mean, the idea of a BQ or an OTQ, like, honestly, it makes my chest tight. And it's like, oh, God, oh, God, don't fuck it up. Like, <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> you know, as a, it's like playing not to lose versus um, playing to win. Um, and the idea of trying to hit 515 pace for 26 miles is both, like, ridiculous but also super inspiring to me. Um, and so I don't – I'm going to need to have some, like, really clear-minded thoughts about splits planning um come the fall but like i don't want to be fixated on that clock um i want to be fixated on the experience of the moments of like i want to be charging through sacramento downtown sacramento like um just ripping through downtown and that gets me fired up i can see why i mean god you must feel powerful you must it's just an incredible feeling and yeah, you're talking about running a pace that's my 8K cross-country PR pace. So, yeah, it, it just it sounds so fast to me. And hearing you talk about running just makes me recognize that you place such a heavy emphasis on knowing your own body, knowing what you can do and what you respond to, what sets you up for an injury so that you can avoid it. Um, and But I imagine that a big issue holding not just marathoners back, but just runners who are training for any kind of distance is some kind of mistaken belief that they have a ceiling on their performance. Like they have the, you know, I know what I can do and it's not that. And I, I seem like you know yourself, but at the same time, you don't know what you might be truly capable of. And so you leave that almost open-ended so you can just keep charging, keep going through the process. Do you ever feel like you had a ceiling on your performance, maybe after your 241 or your 234, at any point during this journey where you like, I'm satisfied with where I am or I'm not going to run any faster than this? Yeah, I mean, when I broke 229, broke 230 and ran 229, it left me a little bit uncertain of what to do. Um, and it's not that I, it's like, it felt like climbing a mountain with like no handholds or like no clear route. You're like, sure, I'm sure there's further I could go. But um, I mean, I wrote an essay called Why Faster that I posted online that was a little bit like 228, 227, 226. Like, is this supposed to fire me up? Because none of these numbers are meaning much to me. Um, and so like, where do we go from here? And I actually had this feeling of, sadness that I'd already run well in New York. I'd run 234. Um, and I was like, I just, I knew genuinely that it wasn't so much about like I had a ceiling, but it was like, I, I knew I just wasn't going to get out of bed and really push myself to try to run 229 at New York. Um, certainly not because like someone else thought it would be cool. And so it didn't, um, it's been like a steady progression of sort of like I was describing, like you bounce to a time goal and then you bounce back to um, sort of a pace goal, not sort of a, not really a goal that you like, I should be able to run that, but more like, Ooh, this is a different experience. Let's, let's try this. And so it's been fun to very meaningful to have friends who are like, well, let's try to do this workout or um, let's try this new speed workout. Um, 
And so it's, it's allowed me to less focus on like, what is my logical maximum and more just focus on those next little increments of like, I wonder if I could, um, you know, we could run our three by three mile workout a little faster. And if we'd survive, um, and it, I, I mean, I joke about it, but like I get my ass kicked by my teammates all the time. Um, and that really does humble you. And it also makes you realize like, okay, I just need to live in the moment right now. Um, and I mean, I feel I should just say like, I'm pretty bad at working out on my own. Um, I'm pretty, I'm, the older I get, the more resolved I am to it. And I just, um, pretty much only do fart, like minute based fartleks on my own. Um, after all of our years, you know, going to the track, um, if I'm alone at the track, I just get into a pretty negative headspace and I'm just checking my splits and being like, Oh, that should be faster. Um, and so again, like it's, it's just knowing the process well enough to be like, I'm just going to stay away from that. Um, I'm going to, we have a, a bike path along the river and I'm like, I'm just going to run minute based, um, segments of like, whether it's 10 by three minutes or, you know, a build of like one minute on one minute off two, three, four, five, four, three, two, one. Um, I've gotten better at just internalizing that it's about the effort. Um, it's about hitting some different zones and, um, not really obsessing the splits, even though I know um, it's all going to be on Strava later. Um, just trying not to worry about it. And honestly, I get super inspired by people like Nick Willis, who's about my age and posts about, you know, his crazy progression to still being a world-class miler. Um, so again, he has splits. I'm like, I don't even know what those splits mean. Um, but he's talking about like how he makes it work as he does it year after year. And he'll talk a lot about that or, I mean, the most inspiring thing I heard recently was how I saw a video of Elliot Kipchoge's training pack at a track in Kenya, and it, something didn't add up to me. It was like, well, Elliot's not at the front. He's somewhere in the middle. And what it, that pulled out of my mind was that we all assume sort of American-based track workouts is like the strongest athlete eventually goes to the front, eventually pulls away, and you can just tell that person's the strongest. Um, and I have friends who've gone and visited with his camp and they're like, no man, like he runs the first one to sort of set the tempo. And then he does a lot of his workouts in the like 80, 85% range. He really doesn't go, you know, you know, really hit himself too, too hard on track days. Now his long runs are like pretty amazing, um, by all accounts and like relative in the same ballpark of some of his marathon performances. So those are pretty world-class, like the things I hear about his long runs are that by the end, the only other men with him are among the best in the world. Um, so you could say that's a pretty big effort, but there's so many words to say, like, I know myself, I know I don't enjoy track workouts where I'm staring at my watch and I'm getting negative. And so what's allowed me to continue to improve is just finding ways to either slip in my, with my teammates and see if I can keep up or to do minute based workouts and do week after week. And you have to, both you have to really balance i have to balance okay how much how do i have constant pressure it's like always always pushing a little bit um but then not pushing too much and injuring yourself so the thing around like the thing about marathoning cycles is that i'm always surprised when people talk about like oh i think i'll do that cycle again um and it's been about a year and i realize like oh they people will do these marathon buildups and then because life is complicated 
they'll fade away from training for maybe six months and then they have to come back to it and say, what shape am I in? What, what am I capable of? Can I even do what I did last year? So the real benefit and why I've progressed is I have friends who, you know, it was, it's been two weeks since Boston and sure enough, I get a text today that's like, Hey guys, anyone interested in a trail run this weekend? Um, and so that'll be its own like different stimulus, but still pushing. And there's this assumed state of always pushing while, you know, still being mindful of what you, the need to recover. Peter, you have a really incredible way of talking about running without actually talking about running. You're talking, you're not talking about training or specific workouts. You're talking about how you think about them. You're talking about, you know, general mindsets. And, and I think that is such in, that's so much more interesting than, oh, let me tell you about this five-by-mile workout I did. You know, everyone can do a five-by-mile workout. But you have such a productive mindset about running. And I can't help but think that, you know, all your progress has not just been physical. It's been, you know, psychological. How did your mindset about the marathon change as you got faster and faster? Just because I assume that, you know, when you're running you know, in the two forties, you think differently about 26.2 miles than someone who's running 219 or 223. Uh, and, and one thing I'll add too, is I read, uh, an analogy that you used a while back. You said a fast marathon is like a fancy skateboard trick. And so maybe you can, you can talk a little bit about that too. Yeah. I mean, I would think I might in just uh, simple terms say that like, I had the old way of thinking about marathoning, which is like, let me see if I can survive it. And then I, there's a general middle zone, which is like learning, uh, trusting that I can do it and then playing around with some paces. And then I, I'm aspiring to get up on this like next shelf of like truly being unafraid to just slam from the start and just like, and I know you still need to walk this line. Um, but it is this idea of keeping up with your friends and my analogy around hitting a trick, a skateboard trick, even though I'm not a skateboarder or a snowboarder or anything is like how rather than focusing on all of the, um, the diet, the stretching, the strength training, the mindfulness, the like millions of things you could be told you should be thinking about. Um, it's just doing what you can, but then focusing on like my friends are doing that. They're, uh, two of my buddies ran 217 and, um, I was in the race with them and it was like constantly being aware of, I want to be with them. And as they were pulling away being like, but I'm still doing okay. Um, and knowing that and like really, really zooming into your own body and being like, um, the idea of like, I've said this once or twice in Boston, internally and also out loud like this doesn't have to go badly right now like this isn't a foregone conclusion we don't just have to run into the wall and then smash ourselves and then like there's no rule that says i if i'm hurting i need to continue into like assured destruction and so for boston i think it's really helped me be like hit some times that i'm proud of but that also like realistically if you'd asked me a week before i might said I wanted to run even a little faster but like it's you have to just have the humility to be like what am I capable of on the day and then translating that to what am I capable of in this moment so the thing I'm most proud of from CIM was like when I got dropped 
um, I ran like a 515 mile or something. The guys ran like a 511 mile and they just like blew off the front. And I was super pissed for like a couple of moments. But then I collected myself and I was like, what if I just ran, you know, what I think I'm capable of running? And I was checking my watch a bit um, to see moving pace because I, I was aware of like, I, I need to not, I need to have something to check into. Um, but it was like, I ran a lot of those miles alone and that gave me, that has given me a lot of confidence that I can step up to this, like really gunning it. Um, which you could say is just like the same progression. It's the same as when I was really trying to run five forty twos to break two thirty. Now I'm like, can I get all these miles under five twenty pace? Um, it's just like a new level of gunning it, but it's also knowing, I mean, I, I get super inspired by the pros now when Scott Fobble was talking the other day about, he finished seventh at Boston and he going back and watching it, he kind of yo-yoed with the leaders and he went from like 20 seconds back to um, leading the whole pack. And then he's, because he was doing a really good job of knowing what he was capable of um, and running with him himself. Desi Linden, like she's famous for this, right? Like she just consistently runs her pace um, at the trials three years ago, you know, Shalane and Amy blasted off the front and or Kevin Hansen, like, you know, was next to her and was like, how are you doing? And she yelled her pace and he's like, okay, yeah, you're doing, you're doing exactly your pace. And she, you know, ended up coming back for second. So it's like, I'm inspired by those people who are performing at the highest, but really are just like become masters at becoming self-aware of what they're capable of. Um, and so, yeah, I try to think about, you know, what are my, what have my teammates done? And like, could I do that? Like that just, again, gets me excited. So like, we don't talk about mileage or training outside of the two days a week. We sort of map out the middle, the Wednesday workout and the Saturday workout. And here's another thing. If you can feel like a little bit wussy in your training, it helps you like, it helps if you're both like pushing it, but also feeling a little bit like a wuss. Like I read all these people's training logs and they, who talk about a Tuesday workout and a Thursday workout and then a long run. And I'm like, Oh man, I couldn't handle that. Um, I'd probably break down. So we've just sort of settled into a Wednesday workout and then a Saturday or Sunday, depending on all of our schedule, um, workout. So, you know, but then outside of those two days, we don't really discuss like what each of us is going to do. Some people go in the pool on Monday. Some people run 12 miles. Some people take the day all totally off. Um, and I think that's allowed each of us to like check our ego a little bit and really try to show up to those days. Um, not to like, show each other up, but like to really try to bring our, our best self and then not, um, overdo it in, in college, to be totally honest, like we were kind of like, Oh, I, I ran 78 this week. I ran 82. Um, we just don't do that to each other, um, as friends or as teammates now, um, because we realize like some guys can run 105 a week. Some guys can run 75 and you know, um, it's not really about that number. Peter, we could probably wax poetic about the marathon for a long time, but I want to ask you specifically about Boston and your experience with Boston. It was just about two weeks ago, so you've had some time to really digest the experience. Um, I want to talk to you about you know, what you were talking about before, how your goals for Boston started evolving before the race and even during the race. Um, and, and I think part of that is just you know, due to the weather, you know, it was kind of a challenging day at Boston, but I also think there's really something special about the Boston course. Um, what, what is different about racing the Boston course than other marathons? What makes it so special and unique? Well, so there, I think there's the experience of just 
the pride of the fans um, and the local community. I've run New York and Boston, and they're both amazing in different ways. I would say New York is unmatched in its size and it's just insanity. But truthfully, um, I mean, it ends on the Upper East Side, which is not a particularly rambunctious area of the city. And it's like, my joke is like, you gut yourself through Brooklyn and then like the Bronx is blasting with rap music. And then you're coming up the Upper East Side and people have come out of brunch and they're like in their polo shirts and they're like, good job, good job. Um, <laughs> and you're like, oh, this is the hardest part of one of the biggest, hardest marathons in the world. And um you guys are just giving me a golf clap. So Boston just is like, it builds and it builds and it builds. Um, and so There's then nothing like Boylston street, right? Yeah. It's just nuts. Um, so both my, so very personally, like both my parents met at BC, um, and I didn't go there, but I visited it with my dad decades ago. And just like when I'm rolling through BC and these guys and girls are just like, pretty much drunk and screaming their faces off. Like there's nothing, you feel like a rock star in the moment. Um, and then I'm trying to write it up into a story, but what I'm always reminded of in Boston is uh, like the marathon will identify your weakness. It'll get you on something. And so at CIM, my, my legs actually didn't feel that bad, but my heart, like a flat marathon when I've run Chicago or CIM, like my heart's about to explode. It feels like, Oh my Lord, this is the, this is so painful. Um, because to maintain pace, you have to keep leaning into heart rates of increasing number. Um, whereas in Boston, I have, and I hear this in friends when they tell me their story, they're like, Oh, I feel like I, I didn't really lean into those last four miles. I feel like I backed off. I did like a lot of my friends are beating themselves up about the last four or five miles of, this year's Boston, but you could say it's almost every year. Um, cause in Boston, it just, it turns your legs to crap. And so I was even aware with four miles to go that, um, I sometimes feel a little bit wussy in Boston because I, cause the limiting factor is my legs. Um, even if I'm hitting decent splits and it's not my breathing. And so the moment I'm able to get enough oxygen to, think somewhat clearly, then you feel like, Oh, I should be being tougher right now. I should be leaning into it. But then sure enough, like you try to lean into it and like your right calf starts to cramp and your left quad like seizes up a little bit. Um, and so now that I've done it six times, I would never say like I've mastered it at all, but, um, I've gotten really accustomed to that feeling and being like, okay, Boston is all about, to me, it's all about ruthless positivity, just like insane amounts of, um, being like, fine, this is the situation, move forward and um, do your best and doing it over and over and over and over um, and not really succumbing to the negative mindsets that can sneak in as your legs are totally, because I mean, much smarter people than me could probably map out like you have your body shutting down on you because of what you're doing to it and what's that do to your mind. And if you get a negative feedback loop going, like it'll, I totally understand how people's bodies just like shut down on them and like actually freak out and say like, we, your body is saying we need you to stop because we're not sure what you're doing. Whereas if you're like, no, um, I'll be fine. My quads are going to be totally toast. Um, and as long, typically like when I'm going up the heart, the heartbreak or any of the Newton Hills, my calves, I sometimes run into trouble with them about to cramp. And so when I'm going uphill, it's pretty bad, but I'm like, oh, at least this is stretching out my calf. Like I'm not, 
I'm less nervous that my calf is going to cramp when I'm going uphill. Um, and so Boston has been this progression of my joke right now is that I want to map out the year. Um, so 12 months and how people think about Boston. So we're, we're right in the aftermath. They're like, Oh, I could have been run tougher. And it's, it's such a hard day. It's such a hard course. And then by the summer, it'll be like, you know, I should go back. Um, <laughs> it, it's a, I, I should do it again. And then by the fall, it's like, okay, I'm going to train differently. Um, and sure enough, like I, I put money on it by January, February, March, you hear like, you know, it can be a fast course. <laughs> yeah. It's Everyone got that loves down. just going down that road of, of rationalizing everything. I mean, I was joking with my buddies. I was like, I told you so. Because like two weeks before the race, I texted. I was like, guys, I just don't want to lose sight of that low 220s. I've just looked through the results over the last decade and like some really good runners have run low 220s. I'm like, I don't want to start to slip, accidentally slip in the mindset that only sub 220 is success. Um, and they're like, yeah, man, but like it can be, it can be fast. And I'm like, are you looking at the 2011 results again? <laughs> the like tailwind year. Um, but what I love about it is I think, yeah, I have, again, there's a positive feedback loop as, as I've hit some of my goals there, I start to love it more. I love the crowds. I love the tradition. Um, having run at Tufts, like it, it does feel very emotional for me to be back in Massachusetts and be like back in that pain zone of giving it your all and hear pe hearing people scream like let's go to you um but then that that type of like sentimentality helps on a course where it's always funky i mean my friend's wife was like do you ever get good weather in boston like <laughs> no kind of not really and you're like uh kind of i mean and um you know so you end up with this thing of like I'm blown away that I can run 223 in Boston and not consider it like an insanely good day. But in reality, um, I know I was as fit or fitter than when I ran 219. And so it is this like, I have friends who are beating themselves up right now, two weeks post, and they're like, oh, I didn't hit my goal by a few minutes. And I'm like, guys, like, I don't know exactly what my goal was because I was trying to just like run by place kind of. But, um, it's certainly not, it, it, it wasn't a great day to fixate on every split and think that you were just going to, um, you know, slip in there. And I, I felt that intensely. Patrick and I were lucky enough. Again, like I feel so fortunate. I got to run it with one of my best friends who's also a, you know, sub elite runner and we were able to check in with each other. And I was just like, I'm running too hard. And he's like, I am too. We got to back off. Um, so we probably did that two or three times and that yielded us a pace that, we were passing people and moving along. Um, unfortunately, like down the six mile 16 hill where you're bombing down and then you're about to take the right to head over the pike or over the 95. Um, I got ahead of Patrick by about 20 or 30 feet. And I was like, that's, this is odd because it's a downhill and I sh it shouldn't have happened. But then I was like, you know, I'll just run this uphill at the pace that feels right for me. And then we'll see where we are. And sure enough, by the top of the hill, I was maybe like 50, 100 meters ahead of him. And I was like, okay, um, just like we've practiced, like you just have to continue on. And I mean, there wasn't even a word spoken between us because there was nothing to say. It was just like, okay, let's do this. Um, I've had so many runs where he's done that to me. And it's not, it's just understood. There's nothing that needs to be said really. Um, and it's just knowing that you got to both like run as hard as you can without overdoing it. Um, one thing I don't 
use anymore is my heart rate monitor. Um, cause I think for, for a couple of years there in the middle, when I started to move from like two forties down to, I think I wore a heart rate monitor for a couple of years. They're getting close to two thirty Cause I, I saw it as like, I didn't yet totally trust my self-assessment of how I was feeling or how I was doing. And so what I liked to do was actually look down, see that my heart rate was like under 160 and be like, oh, I can I can probably push it, but don't make it go over 170. Um, that, those were just numbers I had kind of like roughed out during training. And then as the, over the last two years, honestly, as I started to fixate on the OTQ, I was like, you know what? heart rate monitor is not really going to matter. I can't, um, I need to let it go a little bit and focus on like really, um, any calming techniques, you know, just like breathing and mentally trying to calm and visually trying to calm. I mean, I'll do the thing where I'll just, I, I say like, make it as boring as possible. I'll like, look, I'll find a power line, you know, a power pole and just run to that power pole. And then I'll look down at like the break in the, median and just be like run to that break in the median and you're like um how do you set yourself up for repeated um things that allow your body to stay calm as opposed to freaking out about like i can't do this for seven more miles like i can't do it for seven more miles it's like um we don't really have to you have to do it for like the next block yeah chunking the marathon is such a valuable strategy because I experienced that, you know, we both ran the 2014 uh, Boston marathon and I very much was a little bit of a head case. I, I, I kind of felt anxious the whole race. I was thinking to myself, I should feel better than I'm currently feeling. And it, it was just such a challenge and, and any strategies that kind of take you out of your own head and just into a more calmer place, I think are really beneficial. Yeah. It's like, um, I'll just say that the, I'm writing it into a story about Boston 19, but like my, my least favorite part of Boston is mile seven and eight because it's like kind of rolling and the crowds are a little thin and you're still like so far from home. And so it's just like, it's always mentally overwhelming for me to think about, I have to do a bunch of running and then I have to do the Newton Hills and then I have to do the last five miles and it's just too much. Um, and so I was actually singing like my son's like bedtime lullabies to myself in my head, which is super hokey, but like, I had done it on some like workout at some point and I was like, yeah, I'd like thinking about my son and thinking about my family and thinking about like our time together is much more positive of a mindset for me to be in than being here right now. Yeah. I remember when I ran my PR marathon at the Philadelphia marathon, my kind of internal dialogue that I was having, I, I very much remember just telling myself to relax over and over and over again. And that doesn't mean like, you know, slow down to run 10 minute pace, of course, but you know, it's just everything except my running was going to be incredibly relaxed. My mindset, my hands, my shoulders, everything. And, and I found that was really helpful. And yeah. yeah, you're right about Boston that it's, it's harder, I think at the Boston marathon because of the course. And the way I think about Boston marathon, it's almost like the cross country race of road marathons. You know, you get boss, you have Chicago CIM. Those are like the, the track 5k. You can just let it rip. But you know, when you're at Boston, it's like a cross country race. You have to run the terrain. It's much more about place than time. And you have to really let go of, you know, things like heart rate and pace because they don't mean as much on a course like that. Yeah. I think that, um, I mean, my friend said to me, People look at I finished 33rd or 34th at Boston and they're like, oh my gosh. And I'm like, well, you know, but that's about 
that's in the range that I had hoped. And, um, it's, it's right in there. And then I, I asked a friend, like, what did you, what did you run versus what your bib number was? And she's like, Oh, I was like, you know, my bid number was 3000 and I finished like in the low two thousands. I'm like, that means you beat a ton of people. Like you raced, it's a race and you raced it well. Um, and don't obsess like the exact, the 10 second increments of your mile 25. Um, be proud of, you know, how far you moved up. And that's like what makes Boston so crazy is like people come in from around the world, having really clearly worked hard to qualify. We're all lined up based on, the number we hit to qualify, like it's a lot. Um, but it's also what makes it fun and why people come back year and year and again. And I'm like, I know that some of the guys I ran with will be back because they're like, Oh, that one squeaked away on me. I want another shot at it. Yeah. That's, isn't that what every runner thinks after every race? Oh, I think I could have gone a little faster. Let me just try one more time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Bromka, are you going to be writing another big essay about Boston? You kind of hinted at it. Yeah, um, my final, I have a friend who I'm editing it with who helps me sort of pull out the things that are less, um, they can get a little bit long. And so I'm aiming for it to be as readable as possible. Um, and it should be going up in the next week or two. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I aim to bring these, these race recaps started with my desire to just remember these great moments um, and be like, wow, this, um, this like is a day I just don't want to forget. So when I broke two thirty, I wrote an essay and I was just like, I don't want to forget how wonderful this day was years from now. I don't want to. And I want to remember all these micro moments. The, my write up of CIM where I just missed the OTQ um, is a lot of fun to read. Even for me in hindsight, because it has this time element, it is like, boom, 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 boom. Like, are you going to do it? Are like, is it going to happen? And like um, at one point, I stopped showing the, I stopped writing the splits in the last 5k, uh, because I, in the actual race, I had turned my watch away from, I just stopped looking at my watch. I was like, no need to look at splits. There's nothing to see there. You just got to run. Um, and I had someone write me and be like, well, what were your splits? And I'm like, well, you know, you don't need to know. Cause I didn't know, like it's the dramatic effect. So then to write up Boston was interesting because I realized it was one of my first races where it wasn't about, am I going to PR? Like we discussed, I knew I wasn't from early on. And so it's like, what, how, what is the central theme? And to, so for me, the theme of this race was I had been called up off the wait list to be part of the elite start. Um, and just that whole experience of like being, having my name on my chest and being seen on international TV at the start of the Boston marathon and feeling like, do I belong here? Um, in what way do I belong here? What's it mean? Like, I, I honestly felt a lot of pressure to be like, this makes me sad. Like I, I thought there was a decent percent chance I could look back at the bib for the rest of my life and be disappointed. Um, and be like, I, if I run a bad race today, it's going to, I'm going to always be proud that my name was on the bib, but like, what if I look back and I'm just like, ugh. um, so I ran like, most of the race afraid of that and being like, no, maximize now, go, 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 go. Like stay positive. Don't throw this away. Don't like, I just would take all these negative impulses and just like toss them aside and be like, you got to stay positive. And just, um, you know, I tried to tell the story of appreciating all those moments. And then one thing that doesn't get talked about a lot is there was a team competition at Boston 
which is scored based on the top three times of your team. So the Bowerman Track Club Elite, our non-pro division of Bowerman, um, had brought six guys, and um, you never know who you're racing against, really. But um, we ended up winning the team championship and getting to go to the award ceremony and like getting to go up, you know, on stage and receive a glass uh, dish um, and be, you know, congratulated by the BAA. So it was just like a huge honor. Um, and knowing that I was a part of that and that I wasn't sure where, how my teammates were doing and that I had to continue to like give the most for my team allowed me again to like step outside, like the thing you would talk about in college, step outside your own little pity party and be like, like we got to go. Um, it's, it's about something that we've agreed to that's beyond yourself. Well, Peter, I can't wait to read your race report. I think the the essays that you write about running on Medium, and I'm going to link to these on the Strength Running blog, uh, are some of the best race reports that I've ever read. And, you know, you were talking about the drama of the final 5K and how you didn't put your splits because that's not how you experienced the final 5K, you know, in that particular race. And to me, like, that's just a great example of awesome writing. I mean, these, these race recaps are, you know, very much... Uh, pieces of just literary, uh, uh, they're powerful. And, and for, I just like reading them because uh, I don't think there's a voice in running that is uh, like yours. And so uh, I encourage everyone listening to go check out your writing on Medium. I think it's really fantastic. Um, my one gripe, Peter, is that I wish you would do it a little bit more often because I think we only get maybe three or four essays from you a year, but they're just <laughs> so incredible to read. Thank you very much. It's I realized that as I started getting going with them, again, I tell people it's the power of like having a hobby that comes from a very genuine place. And I think I just encourage everyone to, you know, as the more I do this marathoning over years, it may, allows me the time to zoom out and just think like we live these lives and we have, you know, family and we have work and we have busy things that keep us busy. Um, but we, as a society don't always focus on like, what are the, the in valuing the things that bring us meaning um, that we can just enjoy and that keep us feeling invigorated. And so I love to write. And while I try to bring that in like fits and spurts to my consulting business, like putting the right words on a slide deck is just not the same as going like deep into what do you really mean? And what were you really thinking? And like I mentioned, I have a few friends who'll be like, okay, man, but like, when the OTQ was pretty much gone, like I want to know more, like where did your mind go and what did you think about? Um, and I'm a pretty emotional person. So it's like not that hard for me to remember like that. I was like almost in tears as I was almost like, you know, out of breath and you're just like, we got to go. Um, and so trying to capture that. And I think what I hope is that, um, I'm able to continue to, write about these things while also maintaining that honesty um, and just not trying to, you know, put a, a face on it um, for anyone else. Just, but what I've noticed and what I, why I continue to do it is the more I share about my experience, the more I receive messages from around the world from people who were like, Oh man, I'm like going through a similar journey. And like we talked about, a lot of people, they lead with this totally unnecessary paragraph about how their paces are different than mine. And I'm like, I just, I really could care less. Um, I am just as stoked about people who go all in um, for, you know, a, a marathon at any different pace. Um, and actually, I, if, if there's anything I get riled up about, it's the people who like, I can tell are looking for vanity metrics. You know, they're like, oh, I, 
I'm I'm all up, up for race like doing different events, but like who are like I did all four marathons this fall. Um, and you know, my friends would tell you like I get really riled up about the people who I can tell are, you know, just trying to trying to seem cool in some way, but aren't just like exposing themselves. And though that's where a lot of my writing comes from is this idea of like, you are just like cracked open and like naked on the stage um, when you're going all in. And then like, it's, it's really fun to see. And that's why I think a lot of us know that even if we run a marathon, you kind of want to get back to the course and just see people like gunning it for the line and just giving their all. And that's what I love so much about it. Yeah, one of the things I love about running is just that it's so relatable no matter how fast you are. Because many of the things that we experience as runners are not dependent upon our pace or our finish times. You know, I had a really interesting conversation with Dina Castor for the podcast, and she just wrote an amazing book uh, about kind of her mindset and the psychological side of running. And it's all the same. It doesn't matter if you know, you're running a five minute mile or a, a 10 minute mile. It's It's almost entirely the same. And I think it's such a unique aspect to running that makes the sport so special that yeah. we can we can be going through the same you know psychological things that someone who's running 210 or 220 or 320 or 520 in the marathon is going through you know if you're a basketball player you don't know what it's like to walk into you know the Boston Garden or you know anything like that it's just totally alien you know yeah. your it's local basketball court is not like a professional stadium and so it's very yeah. different and i think that's you know one of the many things that makes running so awesome uh, that's why i think des linden has become so popular is because she has been around the sport long enough that she's able to self-reflect and talk about these micro moments of whether it's like lack lacking inspiration or motivation at different times in training or um feeling good so she goes to the lead or like doubting herself so she drops back um she's been able to not just like she is a great person that's fine but she's also a thinker and has spoken to these micro moments that I think are really interesting and are super relatable. She just actually shared something about Boston. I think someone asked her, you know, you're coming down Boylston and you kept looking off to the side. Were you, you know, were you looking at the fans or, or doing something like that? And she said, you know, honestly, I, I felt like I was going to throw up. And, <laughs> and it's just this funny little moment where you're like, oh, you weren't doing a professional runner thing. You were just doing something that almost all of us have experienced at one point. Yeah, totally. It's awesome. So, Peter, what's going on next for you? You said uh, you're targeting uh, a December marathon. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, really, this in a good way and a bad way. The fall build up to CIM and then the build up to Boston has left me like me and my teammates like super fit, um, but also like we've been burning really brightly. So, so for some of us, that's like physical fatigue. For others of us, I think it's just like a little bit mental fatigue of like every weekend is a grind. Um, so we're going to take some time away from that focus. And that means like, um, you know, the, the more you specialize, the more it allows you to see the, how different the different types of running are. So for me, that means like trail running is different than track running is different than road running. Um, the next focus, the focus of the next year is qualifying for Olympic trials on December 8th at CIM. Um, and then knock on wood, hopefully running the trials on December, on February 29th. Um, to do that, I'm both going to step away from the really long run weekend stuff for a little while. Um, we have a couple of local track meets this summer that I, um, I say this, um, that they're going to be my focus knowing that also because it's part of my focus is 
not to have a focus, like to like allow my body and my mind and my family's schedule to like be a little more flexible over the next couple of months. And so it's, I'm going to be focusing on some shorter track workouts and having some fun with it. Um, the goal is to though still continue to increase, um, or like maintain some high mileage, um, with the ultimate goal to be coming into the fall uh, after Labor Day, both fit, but also mentally refreshed to really like hit those 12 to 14 weeks um, before December. Um, and, you know, people have said like December 8th is really late for the trials. Like, would you want to qualify that late for the trials? I'm like, qualify. Would I want to qualify that late? Like I'll, I'd qualify for the trials the day before if they <laughs> let, let yeah. that. Who cares? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I would love to run the Olympic trials, um, obviously, but, um, so it's more about knowing, cause I mean, you should have seen like we finished Boston and there were guys talking about going to grandma's marathon in Minneapolis in late June, like in, as we're getting our medal and I'm like, guys, too soon, too soon. Helping, having teammates helps me have the confidence to say like, we need to step away from it for a moment. I have friends who are going to run grandmas and I really, really wish them well. Like I'm excited to see what they can do. I know that for me and my family and just like my life right now, um, I can still continue to gain strength while also like focusing for that year. And then honestly, I mean, you almost don't want to think about it or I almost, but, um, my ultimate goal would be break 219, qualify for the trials, run the trials. And then, I don't know what my goal is post um, next February because I'll at that point have already I've run faster than I ever thought I would. Um, and I can't, if I am able to make the trials, I can't think of a bigger uh, accomplishment that's out there for me. So then we'll see where things lead. I mean, um, it's a, you know, it's part and parcel with like getting fully sucked into this uh, hobby and this lifestyle is having to think about like, okay, I, how do I pull myself out of it at some point or how do I keep it fresh? And that was part of like, we ran Boston 2016, 2017. And then Patrick and I had a conversation where we were like, are you inspired by 2018? This is before we knew it was going to be a monsoon. Um, so we just didn't sign up because we just knew we were going to be like rinsing and repeating the same goal. And that just wasn't, it didn't feel genuine to say like, Oh, I just really want to crush it. I love Boston, uh, obviously, but, um, so yeah, we'll have to be a moment to step back. It's refreshing to hear you say that you're going to take some time away from the marathon and marathon training. Cause I think a lot of marathoners with aggressive marathon goals, whether it's a BQ or a certain time goal, like breaking three hours or four hours, they tend to just run three marathons a year, just over and over and over again. And, and I think what you're doing with focusing on some other things, like you're going to do some trail running, which is very different than road running. You're going to be doing some track races, which require some very different workouts that you might not do as, you know, a marathoner. And, and I think that just goes to show that fitness is fitness. And if you can, you know, maintain some of the volume, do a decent long run, but layer in all kinds of different types of running on top of that, then you're not, you're not sacrificing any of your marathon fitness. And, and it's just so great to see someone of your caliber doing the yeah. thing that I tell recreational runners to do all the time. It's like, let's, let's take a break from the marathon just for a little while. I only have to look as far as Elliot Kipchoge who runs two races a year and seems fully at peace and fully inspired. Um, and so I'm like, yeah, like I, I'll, I'll run other little races, uh, locally for fun. But, um, yeah, someone, 
a friend of mine was like, you could run grandma's and then you could head to Berlin. And then it last, that leaves you with the last chance at CIM. And I'm like, I know the goal is an OTQ, like very logically, but that to me feels both like a dreadful year and also allowing a time goal to like definitely potentially overtake me. Um, whereas again, if you, like I said before, it's way more inspiring me to think about what's this new pace that my friends and I could run. And that happens to be 515 pace, um, but it could be any pace. And what is it? How do I best set myself up to like do that? Um, so we were already texting, like as we were recovering from Boston, like the guys who don't have the trials qualifier yet. I'm like, guys, I can't wait to just rip some workouts with you this fall. And they're like, yeah, um, you know, we will only see each other so much, um, you know, on occasion uh, over the summer. And then it'll just come down to like, every week like twice a week just like falling in line and just you know trusting like if he's doing it to my left um and he's doing it to my right like you know i've had workouts that like in hindsight people are texting me like holy shit i saw on strava you did this this and this and i'm like dude i don't even know i was just trying to stay with patrick i just like literally a thousand times on you know this morning was like stay with him stay with him don't get dropped stay with him um and that's just like it's a i can't even speak to how much of a blessing it is yeah, and that goes back to the aspect of community that I think is really helpful for any runner who's attacking a big goal. You know, if you have to push yourself and be in an uncomfortable position, you have to do it with other people around you. And and yes, next to you, but also just the ability to text your friends and talk about running, yeah. the ability just to surround yourself with other runners, you know, even th- through text messages or online in any way you can so that, you know, like you were saying earlier, if they're doing you know, big, bold things as well, it normalizes it. And I, and I think that's uh, just such a powerful way to reframe how you think about running <laughs> and uh, really stack the odds in your favor. Um, Peter, I always have fun talking to you. You're, you're like a philosopher about running. Uh, this is one of my longest podcasts to date. I, I honestly don't think I got to one third of the questions I had for you, but it's so great. I'm going to have to have you on for uh, around three sometime soon. That'd be great. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Hey, everyone. It's Jason. One last time to thank you for subscribing to this podcast. Peter is like a philosopher of sorts when it comes to running, and I could probably sit down and discuss the marathon with him all day long. I really hope you enjoyed this as well, and we're able to pull out a few golden nuggets out of this conversation that will hopefully help you stay on track with your training. And if you need some help, don't hesitate to reach out to me anytime or check out all of our coaching and training programs at strengthrunning.com coaching. Have a great week, and we'll be in touch soon.